Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. As the roles, responsibilities, and autonomy of PAs and MPs continue to grow, an interesting question comes up. Can we actually compare the effectiveness of PAs and MPs to doctors? To help us tackle this question is today's guest, Dr. Ellen Kurtzman. Ellen is a professor of nursing at George Washington University, and she has made nurses, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants a major focus of her research. She has held several senior leadership roles in organizations such as the American Healthcare Association, the American Red Cross, and the Partnership for Behavioral Healthcare. She is also a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. Ellen's recently published research compares the practice patterns and quality of care of NPs and PAs to that of family physicians in a very specific setting. As you'll see, this paper is just the beginning of some really interesting forthcoming research and debate related to our earlier question. Also, we really apologize for the audio on this one. We were all working out of the field that day and just didn't have our normal equipment with us. We've come up with a fix for this for future episodes, but this one is just not as crisp as it normally is. So bear with us. It's still a great episode, and enjoy. All right, everyone. Welcome back. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin on Peer Spectrum. Today we have Ellen Kurtzman with us. Ellen, we're just really happy to have you today. Welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on. Well, thanks, I appreciate that. Ellen, uh, just before we get into some of your research and the conversation we're really excited to have today, just give our viewers a background of who you are, where you are right now, and what some of your clinical and research interests have been. Sure. Well, I'm a neuroscientist and what I would consider to be a health services researcher. Um, I'm an associate professor at the George Washington University School of Nursing, which is in Washington, D.C. I've been at GW for about 10 years. I'm a nurse by training, so my undergraduate degree is a bachelor's in nursing from the University of Pennsylvania. But I went on to get degrees in both public health and actually my PhD is in public policy. And so what I would say is the intersection of my interests, both clinically and from a research perspective, are at the intersection of those disciplines. So at the intersection of nursing and healthcare, the intersection of public health and the intersection of public policy. I'm always really looking for interesting questions and ideas about how our healthcare workforce interfaces with healthcare quality and achieving better value for patients and consumers, and the effects and the impact of public policy, both state, federal, and institutional, on the workforce and the patients that we serve. And so most of my research sort of comes from that intersection and questions that are sort of, you know, in those, in that sweet spot. Um, and the study I think that we'll be talking about today and some of the work that I've done is focused on nurse practitioners very specifically and physician assistants as well. And I'm, I look forward to answering your questions and speaking to your audience about these roles and, and some of the research that I've done. Well, it's a very interesting paper that you just published uh, this, 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 this summer. We'll have that up in the show notes so everyone can uh, take a look for themselves. But we're going to be talking about PAs and NPs specifically today. Ellen, let's just start. Sometimes we don't always think about this. Where did the roles of nurse practitioner and physician assistant come from? When did these roles start, at least in the United States? And just give us a little, little history there. 
Sure. Well, the history is is actually really interesting and not too unlike the situation we're in right now in this country. I know much more about the history around uh, nurse practitioners than I do about physician assistants. So let me just start with a brief overview of what happened in the nurse practitioner world. So about 50 years ago, frankly, in, in states that had very rural and underserved populations, uh, there were you know, wise physicians and academicians and, and nurse leaders who got together to ask themselves how they could confront and how they could solve some of the problems that were happening, mostly in rural and underserved communities. In other words, how can we care for people in these communities where the demands are quite high and, frankly, where most practitioners don't want to live and don't want to practice? And so uh, in the state of Colorado, one of the answers to that question was, let's train a group of nurses who are talented and skilled and fully licensed and educated. Let's give them additional training. Let's give them some deep clinical instruction. And let's work to create an independent role for them so that they can work in these underserved communities and with these very vulnerable populations where otherwise people would not get any medical care. And so the original thinking behind nurse practitioners was to train sort of a, 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 you know, a nurse who was already registered and licensed but with additional training, specialized clinical skills to work in these underserved communities and with these very, very vulnerable populations where otherwise medical care would not be provided. The physician assistant um, role has been developed a little bit different. It's much more of a medical model, and physician assistants work in collaboration always and under the supervision of a physician. And so the role wasn't uh, developed to be as fully independent as that of nurse practitioner. And that's sort of the history. Nurse practitioners have been credentialed in this country for over 50 years. And some of the first programs, both in terms of the education of these professionals, as well as where they were credentialed, uh, are in the West. So Idaho, Colorado, some of these more rural states where the demands are great and the number of practitioners is just too few to take care of the population that's there. Well, it does make sense. I mean, fast distances between towns, especially out, out in the West. And early on, the role that many of these practitioners played, is it similar to what we see today? Um, was there resistance from, from physicians seeing autonomy and more, um, what, what, what developed, sure. especially in Colorado? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, there are, I think there are two issues. One is that in many of the states that were early adopters, the demands were just so extreme that um, some of the threats the professional threats that folks might have felt um, toward and against nurse practitioners, I think eroded just because the demands were so high. And in some of these communities, frankly, physicians, the traditional provider of care, didn't, you know, they didn't want to live in these frontier towns. And, that, and, and actually, that's what it was called in some of the very early literature. It was called frontier nursing. Um, and so I think in, in a lot of those communities and some of those states, the resistance might have eroded a little more quickly because the demands were high and there just were not enough practitioners in the, in the uh, geographic regions that were needed and, and where care, you know, care was demanded. I think it's become, it's, you know, there have been threats all along. I, I completely understand that. I think anytime there's a profession where there's another professional who's sort of encroaching on some of the same territory, there, there are feelings and attitudes of threats. 
And I think across the country and across the last 50 years, we've seen a lot of demonstration of that. Both physician lobbies opposing it, nurse practitioner lobbies fighting hard for rights as well as uh, physician assistant rights. And I think in some states there have been some, you know, folks have found common ground, and in other states, legislatures, frankly, have made the decisions for the professionals, depending on the will of the state, the population, and some of these geographic areas as well. We're going to talk a lot more about that shortly here, but let's stop for a moment and just think about the patients. Early on, you know, we think there are some patients will come to see their doctor and say, I want to see the doctor. I don't want to see someone else. And not knowing anything more about the situation, they just think, well, I want someone with doctor in front of their name. Early on, was there any hesitation or resistance from patients? Or did they really kind of, um, you know, gravitate towards this because they had available care where before they didn't? Sure. And here I'm not necessarily seeking from the research that I've done, but there has been a lot of research on the public attitudes toward and about nurse practitioners. And the most recent literature shows a fairly high level of acceptance that patients actually are quite comfortable seeing nurse practitioners um, and feel good about the care that's that's being provided. That said, there are plenty of communities and plenty of Americans that have never met a nurse practitioner, don't know what one is. I mean, we're still talking about a relatively small number of providers in this country. We're talking about maybe 200,000 nurse practitioners uh, in, in the nation. And so in many communities, especially states that are not as friendly to nurse practitioners, there are patients and, and consumers who have, you know, have no experience at all. And I think that is slowly changing, but I think there's always going to be resistance and attitudes, uh, uh, you know, that oppose change. That's just sort of the nature of, of the human, you know, experience. Although it's, um, it's also the nature of human experience to get used to things. And I think uh, one of the questions is, do you think that the medical aspect that the MDs are getting more used to nurse practitioners um, when you were researching your paper or talking to people or you mentioned offline that you talk to younger uh, providers are they more accepting of nurse practitioners and and uh, PAs to some degree now than than they used to be or is there still this us against them mentality yeah, you know, I think there, you know, and again, this is just anecdote, and this is my personal opinion from interacting with professionals and, and other, you know, and colleagues in both, uh, both disciplines and in both fields. But I think it's the, the old story of, you know, if you've, if you've met, if you've met one and liked one, then you like them. And if you haven't met one and, or didn't, you know, didn't have a good experience when, with one, then you don't, then you don't like them. I also think that the professional lobby uh, has to take a firm position and you know in any field uh, you know so I think the physician lobby assumes a position and that doesn't necessarily mean that all the physicians in that state or in you know for that specialty feel exactly the same way there are plenty of physicians in specialty areas and in states where there's been traditional resistance against nurse practitioners and if you speak to them personally and individually they'll say I've had great experience with, with nurse practitioners working with with and for me and support the idea, but the professional lobby may take a different position for very good reasons. And so I understand the tension. I think that uh, where my research is helpful is looking just very quantitatively and objectively at 
uh, you know, to be able to compare practitioners, sort of practitioner to practitioner on a set of outcomes that should be important to patients. And so that's where my research may be helpful in, in helping the dialogue and the conversation. Right. And you have to agree that, uh, that the extenders, that nurse practitioners are here to stay. There's not going to be a situation. If anything, nowadays, it's ev- they're even more important, and we're going to be seeing more nurse practitioners getting more roles and more PAs getting more independent roles. Um, it's not like, uh, like any professional organization can say, no, nurse practitioners have to disappear, and then bang, they're gone. Well, I think what's really interesting is if you just look at the data, we're graduating more, more and more nurse practitioners each year. We're, there are more states than ever before that are, uh, you know, what I consider friendly to nurse practitioners. In other words, the laws and regulations in those states allow nurse practitioners more independence. And this, the overall trend is for states to become more friendly and, and enable more autonomy and independence for nurse practitioners. Mm-hmm. And I think, frankly, the demand is going to continue, especially under the Affordable Care Act. The demand for primary care has just grown dramatically. And so if you just sort of look at the equation, I think that the, you know, the, the typical provider out there or patient out there has to assume that we're going to continue to develop unique roles and new and novel roles for people to fit into the healthcare system and provide care in ways we've never imagined. Whether that's a nurse practitioner or physician assistant assistant or a new role we haven't even envisioned today. I think, I think that's where it's going to go. Sure. And, um, and your really excellent paper covers the quality of care, but you don't um, get into the, the uh, cost effectiveness of, of uh, nurse practitioners. Have you looked at that? Are you aware of research that talks about how, whether the, the uh, care given by the, um, the extenders is cost effective? Sure. So, um, yeah, we can talk about my study, which focused specifically on quality of care. And I also looked at a few uh, service utilization and referral pattern measures, which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I was unable, not because I'm disinterested in it, but because of the data that I used, I was unable to look at cost of care. I was unable to look at access, which are, of course, huge things. I mean, given the background that nurse practitioners and physician assistants are, um, you know, the roles developed specifically to uh, enhance access, the fact that I couldn't measure that as part of my study is, is a key oversight. That said, there are there is a literature around access and cost, and I, although I can't recite it by heart, what I can tell you is the overall you know my overall sense of that literature and that evidence is that there is an improvement in access when states are more friendly and open to nurse practitioners uh, practicing in that state, and there are some costs uh, savings and some economies in using nurse practitioners and that's primarily because the payers in this country the largest one being medicare reimburses nurse practitioners at a fraction for what a physician would earn for the same visit for the same set of services and so typically there are cost savings and typically there are improvements in access although that's not what my paper touched on right yeah and of course, nowadays with uh, value-based medicine, we're conflating cost-effectiveness and quality anyway. Well, if not conflating, we're we're shuffling them together. So um, the quality of care is is so important because it's factored into uh, this this mysterious value-based uh, formula as well. So for sure, yeah. yeah. Well, Elle, let's let's talk about your paper here. So 
let's just start with what question were you asking and what did you learn? You were obviously comparing the quality of care, as you called it, of nurse practitioners, PAs, and primary care physicians. But give us an idea of what you found here. Sure. So let me give you just a bit of background, which I think is is useful. Um, and that's it. As I said earlier in the interview, I, I've really been interested in sort of the intersection between policy and public health and, and nursing care. And so I think it was a very natural set of questions for me to ask about how nurse practitioners specifically, but also physician assistants, what their roles are in the healthcare system and sort of how's it going. And to the extent that public policy drives the how's it's go how, it, how it's going part, um, that certainly played a key role. So I've been eager to study the, the care of physician assistants and nurse practitioners, and especially given the growing demand for these clinicians and the growing demand for primary care, really the time was ripe for, for, for me to move ahead on this. Now, what enabled it, frankly, was I was afforded an incredible opportunity to spend a year of my professional life at a place called the National Center for Health Statistics, um, affectionately referred to as NCHS. Now, for those of your listeners who don't know NCHS, um, it's, a, it's a division or an office or a center out of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. The office of NCHS happens to be outside of Washington, D.C. in Hyattsville, Maryland. And NCHS sort of serves as the health sticks agency for the nation. So they are constantly collecting numbers and crunching numbers, both for Congress and as well as for the American people, about the status of healthcare and the delivery system in this country. So I was afforded this incredible opportunity to spend a year there and use their data resources and their other resources to conduct research. Now, as it just so happens, my interest in session assistance coincided with uh, a data set that NCHS had been collecting for a number of years, but what I I didn't necessarily know until I, I took a deeper dive into it is that one of their data sets, a small data set that is, is probably less utilized by researchers, actually distinguishes visits to physicians from visits to nurse practitioners and visits to physician assistants. Mm. And, and that is the only real way to study and compare the care that's provided by these practitioners. Right. You have to know who's seeing a nurse practitioner versus who's seeing a, a PA to really understand whether the care delivered during those patients is uh, equivalent or whether there are differences. And so a small data set, um, which is collected in community health centers, was made available to me during this year. And I actually did several studies, one which we're talking about today, but as a compliment, um, I, I actually did look at how states' scope of practice affects nurse practitioner quality. So I, in addition to comparing quality across the practitioner groups, in other words, studying how nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and physician care compares, I also did a, a sister study where I looked at whether nurse practitioners in states that have uh, more independent practice laws practice similarly to nurse practitioners in states that have much more restricted 
uh, practice laws. And so those are two complementary studies that I can talk about both, or, or I know we're going to focus primarily on the one that compares physicians uh, to these other clinicians. But both, both studies were published in the data from NCHS and, and during the year that I spent there, uh, both learning and studying and, and researching using their data. Well, I think we should talk about both. And um, specifically, we'll start with this study. This was the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey subset. Uh, Is that correct, Ellen? That's right. So both studies were conducted using uh, the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey data. For your listeners, that's often uh, referred to as the NAMSIS data. That's, that's the acronym for it. But I think what the, the specific subsample that I used where these visits to nurse practitioners and physician assistants are distinguished from visits to physicians is a subset that is called the community health center subsample. So I use this community health center subsample of NAMSIS for both studies. Um, and, and one study was published in medical care and the other was published in health services research. So tell us about this data. I mean, how is it collected and you had some questions to ask of the data in order to do your study. Sure. It's, you know, this is a really debatable topic with a lot of people. How do you measure quality of care? How do you measure the delivery of care? And we could go spend hours on that topic, but you had to pick something. So sure. tell us what you picked and what did you learn from that subset of data that you, that you found at the um, NCHS? Sure. So there were a couple of conditions, or I guess there were several criteria that were needed um, of the data in order for me to use it for this purpose. So the first uh, requirement or criterion was that the data had to distinguish visits to nurse practitioners from physician assistants from physicians. And so if I could check off that box, then I had to ask another question, which was could I look at measures of quality or could I distinguish or derive measures of quality from the data that, that were available from the sample. And in this case, I was able to check off both boxes. In other words, these data that are collected in the community health centers, they do distinguish visits to physicians from those to NPs and PAs. And other researchers far in advance of me uh, use these same data to construct measures of quality measures that were uh, you know, well-established, measures that reflected common standards of practice, measures that reflected practice guidelines that were uh, promulgated by some of the you know, physician groups and physician specialty organizations. And so the measures that I used in both of these studies were not measures that I you know, sort of came up with on my own. I didn't you know, construct them on the back of a, of a notebook. These come from well-established studies that other people before me uh, have conducted, and they come from standards of practice that are well agreed on and based on consensus standards. Now, the way that the data are constructed, and there are some limitations, which I hope we have a chance to talk about, but the data are survey data. Um, and the federal government spends a ton of energy and resources and, and quite a bit of uh, uh, cerebral time thinking about how to collect data on the care delivered by practitioners. In this case, what happens is a random sample of community health centers is identified. That random sample 
is identified from the list of all community health centers in this country, and there are about 1,400 right now. So a random sample of about 100 community health centers is selected. And then agents of the federal government literally go out to those community health centers. They set up appointments and they go out to those community health centers and they collect some information about the community health center. And one of the pieces of information they collect is a roster, literally a list of all the practitioners who work and are employed by that community health center. Those practitioners can be nurse practitioners, they can be physician assistants, they can be physicians, and they can be nurse midwives as well. And so across those four categories, the community health center provides the agent of the government, this list of all the practitioners, and the agent uses a formula to select a random sample of practitioners in that community health center. The random sample is a sample of three, so it can be three physicians by luck of the draw, it can be three nurse practitioners by luck of the draw, it can be three physician assistants by luck of the draw, or some combination thereof. And then for each of those practitioners, the, you know, there's a fair amount of data collected on the practitioner, like demographic information, as well as the nature of their practice and how big their practice is. And then ultimately, approximately 30 visits are uh, randomly sampled during a random week of practice that the practitioner practices. And those approximately 30 visits, lots of information uh, uh, is collected on each of those visits. Information about the patient, for example, their demographic, who their payer source is, what their age is, what their race and ethnicity are. But in addition, there's a, a, a number of variables, literally dozens, that are collected about the services that are rendered during that visit, the diagnosis, uh, and, and the care that was provided uh, basically while the patient was being seen by the provider during visit. And so those are the data that were used for both of the studies. I have lots of information on the practitioner, and it is a random uh, probability sample survey, which means that these data are considered nationally representative of the nation. Uh, given the way the sampling is done. So they're, they're very powerful data and can be used for precisely the set of questions I had, which made me feel like I had won the lottery. <laughs> oh, I'd say so. Yeah. Were there, uh, were there questions that you wished had been answered? I mean, you, you studied certain outcomes. Were there certain things that you wished they had collected? Um, I mean, obviously, you had no control over that, but you thought might have been more effective as you were, <laughs> as you were going through the data? No question. I mean, I think for as many uh, variables and outcomes and, and measures of quality that I was able to look at, there were at least as many or maybe double that number uh, you know, that I wanted to look at. And let me just give you some examples. Um, first of all, these data are not longitudinal. And let me just clarify what I mean by that. So every year, the federal government goes out and samples 100 community health centers and goes to them and collects the data that I just described in exactly the same way. Um, but it's not the same 100 community health centers every year, and it's not the same uh, practitioners who are sampled in those community health centers, and it's certainly not the same patients that uh, information is gathered on every year. And so what that means is that it's a snapshot of care rather than care over time. And your listeners know, and I certainly know, and uh, you know, researchers who study quality know 
that the ideal circumstance is to know what happens to a patient over time, to really understand whether quality is, is delivered and whether uh, care is uh, you know, consistent with recommended standards and whether the patient gets better, if, if that's what the expectation is. And so one very obvious limitation is I didn't have longitudinal data. So that's one huge you know, factor that limits what I could do. Mm-hmm. The second so you thing had five is, years, right? So this went back five years. I had multiple years. One study I used five years. The other study I used six years. But just keep in mind, it's a, a snapshot of six years. Um, so it's seeing a set of patients one year um, and a different set another year and a third set the third year. So that, that does limit what can do statistically and analytically in measuring quality. The other thing I'll say is that while lots of information, I mean, I could, I could probably count the variables. It's probably in the hundreds, I, I would imagine, are collected on every patient visit in the sample there are, lots of, there are lots of things that aren't collected, and we, we alluded to those earlier. For example, uh, the, the cost of care, there's no information about the cost of care. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no information about people's preferences or their satisfaction with the care. That's so, so we don't know whether the patient leaves the office feeling uh, good and, and respected and you know, feels as if they got good advice and, and good service and, and a good set of skills while they were there. We have no information about their quality of life. And so while uh, we may say adequate care was delivered, we don't know whether the patient left uh, viewing their, their life going in a better direction. We have, no, we have no information on functional status. So while the, the patient might have received uh, care during that visit that was very appropriate for the disease that they have. It might just be that the patient left and wasn't able to go to church that Sunday or wasn't able to pick up their grandchild. And those might be the much more important things to that patient than whether or not they got the right drug for the right disease at the right moment. And so the the data set definitely has limitations. That said, in my mind, especially, you know, with the exception maybe of some pro- pro- uh, proprietary data, um, which would come at a very high cost or might not be available for research at all, these are the best federally collected national uh, and publicly available data that I know of to study this, this these sets of questions. Sure. And, um, and a large volume of some data is better than no data at all, for sure. Um, let's go on a little tangent and then we'll get back to the paper because, uh, you're talking to probably the only, uh, physician, one of the few physicians in the world who actually saw the value of meaningful use and, um, to some degree of macro, um, in theory, one of the really, the hidden parts, it turns out to be one of the least popular parts of the affordable care act was the collection of data automatically, or if not automatically, it was built into the system. Going forward, is that going to be a huge advantage, or is it going to be any advantage to, uh, to doing studies like this, do you think? So it is a huge advantage going forward. Those are exactly the kind of data that are needed to do a better job and a more adequate job than I was able to do. I should also mention that I'm not an expert on this, but uh, the the federal government, this arm of the federal government that collects these data, the National uh, Center for Health Statistics, has gone to an electronic format for collecting some of these data. And they now interface with some of the electronic health records that are collected in offices. And so I think 
if not already, and I, again, I'm not an expert on where things went after 2011 when I used my data, but I, I, there have been huge advances in exactly what you're describing, even with the data that I use, just several years you know, uh, ahead of uh, the, the data that I had available to me at the time. Great. And one of the advantages of MACRA, and we'll discuss this a little bit uh, I hope it, towards the end, is you get to choose, the doctors at least for now are getting to choose what data they're collecting. So uh, if we need to do more of a preference satisfaction data or quality of life data, there, there must be some way to bring that in. And um, what I hope is it will get a chance to, to talk about what some of that data would look like and how we can collect that. But um, okay, tangent done, let's get back on track. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what, we're still on that tangent. I got to ask one more question. I was going to save this more towards the end, but when you're talking about basically this is a national clearinghouse for, for data uh, as far as relates to medicine in our country. I'm thinking I just watched a, uh, a documentary recently about the Hubble Space Telescope, and every year scientists apply for time on the telescope, and if they get it, they get the point. And Keith had asked earlier about what kinds of questions are asked, say, in these surveys. I mean, this is uh, in, very, in every way, this is very much like the, the, the telescope. It's a resource that can be pointed in any number of different directions. So, Ellen, who actually makes the decisions about, you know, whether we should look at PAs versus NPs versus MDs? I mean, there's just so many different directions we go to go with. I mean, do you have sure. influence on this as a researcher? I mean, who, who actually makes these decisions on what to actually point our questions Sure. So as I mentioned, uh, the National Center for Health Statistics is a, a federal statistics agency. So to be honest, the American public has a decision about the data that are collected. Now, uh, you know, in, in theory, that's how it's worked. It works because as taxpayers, we all have influence over how our taxpayer dollars are used. And given the right voice uh, and, and given you know, it directed in the right way, I think there's every opportunity to shape over time what data are collected by agencies like NCHS and some of its sister agencies in some of the other fields. For example, there are you know there are, there is a labor statistical agency that collects data on uh, the labor force in this in this country. And so each of those agencies, I think, can be very influenced by the public, by providers by researchers who are taxpayers and who have influence in the same way we have influence on any of the policies and uh, actions of the federal government. That said, this survey has been collected, the, the initial sample anyway, has been collected for over 30 years. Um, some of the earliest uh, collection efforts on the part of this agency in physician offices were done in the 1970s. And so to some extent, the, the federal government also doesn't want to, you know, cycle in and cycle out data so frequently that there's no continuity over time. Right. So some right. of the variables that are collected here are, uh, you know, collected because they've always been collected and it makes good sense to have trends over time, for example, on demographics and, and of both the patients and the practitioners who are delivering care. But new things have come on board. For example, issues around electronic uh, use of electronic health records. There are now questions on the survey about the use in physician offices and community health centers about the use of electronic health records. Obviously, in the 1970s, those questions didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So it's really a balance uh, that these agencies face between model and look at some really important issues that are contemporary and facing the nation right now with 
a balance with maintaining some variables and some items that have always been collected and that trends that over time are important for us to, to know about too. Um, I can tell you right now that the, the survey is fairly time intensive to administer practitioner who's giving information and the federal government that's collecting information. So it's also a balancing act around the burden of collecting these data uh, with, with how many variables and how many items can be gathered. Right. That's a lot. That's a long answer to your question. So no, that makes sense. I, I was just yeah. curious, and uh, yeah, we're off on the tangent long enough, so we'll get back on track to your paper. Sure. But uh, let's talk about what you learned. I mean, when you were comparing different providers, what what did you discover? Sure. So, you know, um, for those in your audience who sort of want the punchline or the clip or the cliff notes version, Spo spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert, understanding that they might want, not want to read 10 pages of uh, research, uh, you know, language in a, in a medical journal or a health services research journal. The punchline is sort of something like this, that across the outcomes I studied, which are limited in all the ways we just described, and in the setting in which the study was situated, which is community health centers, which certainly is not generalizable outside of community health centers, it appears as if physician capable to care that's provided by nurse practitioners and physician assistants. In other words, on each of the nine outcomes that I looked at, there are some nuances which we can get into, but for the most part, I would categorize care as being wholly equivalent. So patients are getting the same types of services. Patients who need certain treatments and care are getting those same treatments and care in the same quantity and the same frequency. And care is largely similar across these three practitioner types in community health centers using the data that I had available over the years that I had available to do the research. So that's sort of the punchline. Great. Yeah. And, and that is a big deal. I mean, that's, that's why we, we asked you to come on today because we often think of, well, maybe we don't think of it this way, but maybe patients do that. PAs and MPs are there to assist physicians like a nurse or CRNA or someone else. But in this case, you found that there is an equivalence of, of care being delivered. And yes. it's kind of hard to wrap your head around in some ways, too, because you think of all the years of schooling and training and residency to become a family physician, for example. How can some, you know, someone go for a much shorter period of time and still be able to deliver the same value to the patient? Uh, what are your thoughts on that, for example? Sure. And this is also relevant to medical students right now who may be thinking, is it worth me going to become a family doctor right now? I know there's a demand, but maybe I should just become an MP. And, well, you know, those are, you know, those are things going through people's minds right now. Sure. Well, let me answer that, Colin, by saying that I think the answer in my study about that is in the measures that we modeled. So the, the quality outcomes or the quality indicators that we looked at are things that are fairly uh, that are, are the it's the type of recommended care that is commonly provided by primary care practitioners. We weren't looking, for example, to see whether Keith caught, cut off the right limb when he's doing you know an amputation, or whether he set the cast and the bone in the right way. If you know if those are things that Keith does in his his practice, what we looked at is whether, for example. People who are smokers get effective smoking cessation counseling, whether people who have depression get basic care for their depression, 
whether people who have high cholesterol are receiving the right medications and the right counsel for their their uh, high cholesterol. So these are fairly basic services and levels of, of service and care and practice that we would expect uh, in, in the primary in the delivery of primary care. We weren't looking at super specialized services or super specialized outcomes um, that in fact may look considerably different if we did compare these practitioners on those types of outcomes. But we deliberately picked outcomes in the areas that we knew nurse practitioners, physician assistants and physicians all within their licenses and within the state laws and policies that guide them are able to deliver care right. on these same these same things. Right. And that makes sense. I uh, wouldn't want to compare a primary care doctor with an orthopedist either on, along the exact same lines. You'd need the, the things that they, the, the areas where they overlapped. Um, now, there were two uh, indicators that, that uh, the nurse practitioner actually, actually were statistically significant in. And in fact, one of them, the PAs as well, compared to the MDs. Um, can you comment on those? And, and um, I'm leading up to another question. Uh, spoiler alert. They're both educational uh, yes. initiatives. And I think that that's an important point. Uh, so could you tell us about those two indicators or those two outcomes and also what you what you took home from that as a message? Sure. So for those of you who want to read all eight pages of the research text, what you'll learn is that on two outcomes or two measures that I looked at, it looks as though nurse practitioners and physician assistants are actually delivering more of this or delivering at a higher level of both of these outcomes. And one happens to be whether or not smokers get uh, counseling on smoking cessation. So in other words, whether a patient who is a smoker either uh, is advised to sm stop smoking and given counsel around that or whether they are prescribed some kind of nicotine replacement therapy, as well as um, just a general uh, indicator that we looked at as to whether or not health education and or counseling services were provided during the visit. And so what my data and what my research suggests are that on smoking cessation counseling, nurse practitioners seem to uh, provide smoking cessation counseling at uh, the probability that you're going to get smoking cessation counseling if you're a smoker and you see a nurse practitioner in this case. Similarly, if you see a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, you are more likely to receive some form of health education or counseling than if you see a, a physician. And so those are the two indicators that I, I did see some statistically significant difference. And in both cases and for both practitioners, it appears as if patients who are seen by nurse practitioners and physician assistants see a little bit more of these services and a little bit more of this care during their visits than they would if they were to see a physician. And I, you know, just for anecdotally, this is not from the research, but anecdotally, I'm, I am a nurse, although I'm not a nurse practitioner. A lot of my colleagues at GW and the School of Nursing are nurse practitioners. And the tradition around how nurse practitioners uh, were educated and um, the, the training and the clinical expertise that they have, much of it focuses on patient you know, prevention of illness, uh, uh, health promotion, and those, those functions have a huge education component. So I think it makes perfect sense to me. Sure. Well, as somebody who's, who's worked with nurse practitioners, it doesn't surprise me either because that's actually the, the role that, that I wanted the nurse practitioner to take to a lot of extent. I wanted them to be the person who comes in after I've made my statement and says, okay, let me tell you what this means. 
Um, do you think that, uh, and I guess it's really impossible to tell this from the, the data, do you think that, that part of that was, um, do you think the, the, uh, the public, the, the clients, the, the patients are uh, more expecting that a, a nurse practitioner is going to give them more of a sort of, uh, you know, let me sit down and explain this to, to approach than an MD? Do you think that'll be part of the expectation that people will have going forward? Well, I think that, um, well, let me say this. What we don't know from the data is whether the patient asked for that kind of information, That's right? That's true. We don't know whether during the visit, uh, you know, the patient who was a smoker said to the nurse practitioner, I really want to quit smoking. and I just don't have the information. And so it, it created the entree for the nurse practitioner to provide the education, where, whereas maybe the visit or the patient who had the visit with the physician wouldn't have that expectation. So it's completely impossible for me to distinguish that from the data that I had. What I can tell you is that as a researcher, I use lots of tools to try to control for differences in those kinds of things. And so there are lots of things I try to control for to sort of diminish those kinds of differences or to tease those out of the research question so that I was comparing apples to the apples. So to the extent, for example, that I tried to control for the complexity of the patient, I control for that. To the extent that I control for the age of the patient, I control for that. To the extent that I could control for whether the patient had been seen really frequently over the last of the, you know, the past year, I tried to control for that. And some, some of that is the limitation of the data and some of that, uh, you know, there are things I certainly wanted to control for or to, uh, to, to mitigate, but I was comparing apples to apples even more carefully. And to some extent, that's a function of the data availability. Sure. Well, as with all really, really good studies, it raises questions as well as answers them. And so my question to you is, where do we go from here after this study? What's the fall we start looking at? next and also where from here are you going to continue to work in this um on this line of of research and are you going to try to take this to another another level try to get more into the quality or into of life type aspects if you can sure well i think so i think the you know i i think where this study is situated um it is really uh a part of a, it's a growing body of evidence. You know, I sort of think of it as a library that has new volumes on the shelf every year about how the full variety of practitioners in this country serving the public interest and, and how they're doing in terms of the quality that we expect and uh, the cost and access that we deserve as patients. And so I would say this is one volume or maybe one, you know, one paper in a huge library that's developing and that I hope doesn't stop developing. And so I see it in that context. I think the study is is rigorous, despite some of the things that we, you know, we're faced with in the data. Um, but, but I don't see it as, you know, the, the final answer in, right. in any way. I think it's going to add, uh, you know, sort of a, another nuance, a, another uh, set of conversations to a much bigger set of questions, and one that will probably be asked for, for decades long after I finish my career. So um, that's sort of how I see it. 
I don't I would hate for a policymaker, for example, to take this one study and make any final decision about you know, what that state, for example, should do with respect to nurse practitioner assistance. I do think it adds to an overall body of evidence that suggests that the care provided by nurse practitioners and physician assistants meets our quality standards. Those quality standards are in this country. I think we have a lot more work to do in how we measure quality independent of this study or any study, I think that's a that's a science that is being refined as we speak. Right. I think that we don't have good data systems. You mentioned electronic health records that will help in that regard, but I think we've really been at a disadvantage in the country in terms of measuring quality. And I think some of the gaps um, that I described earlier are a huge gap in terms of functional status, uh, quality of life, patient preferences, overall morbidity, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the trajectory of people's health and, and illness. These are things that we or in, you know, measuring in our infant, they're not sophisticated at all in measuring those kinds of things. Right. Um, so I, in terms of where my own program of research is going, this is one uh, area that absolutely to continue to study. Um, I'm actually working right now on a study that is just focused on physicians, actually, uh, looking to see whether there are trade-offs made between the quality of care that's provided by physicians and the quantity of care that physicians can provide. Whether or not they see more patients, quality, whether they see fewer patients and ensure that everything that's done for that patient or that visit from soup to nuts is accomplished. So my research is not specific to nurse practitioners right. or physician assistants. My questions are really about quality, value, and how uh, the workforce and uh, the public policy system in this country sort of interact. So some of my questions are about these practitioners, but not all of them, for sure. Right. Sure. And that's going to be a big tin of worms. We'll have to have you back on to find out <laughs> what you find out about quantity versus quality. Um, I well, I, sure. I'll, be, yeah. I'll be happy to do that, too. I have expectations, but I, I won't uh, bias you in any way. I'll be fascinated to hear what those those might turn out to be. So. Well, Ellen, one other thing I was thinking about, we were talking about education and counseling of patients, and this takes time, right? And Absolutely, yep. Not everybody has time. Did you find at all, and this may not have been within the scope of this research, but did you find that nurse practitioners and PAs are able to spend more time with patients? Well, we actually, so the, the survey set that I use does uh, have a variable where they, they uh, indicate the number of minutes that are spent with the practitioner. And um, when I looked at that, that particular variable, there is not a lot of variability between physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. And I'm not sure whether that's a function of our payer environment. In other words, that many managed care companies sort of demand a certain level of productivity, and so patients are scheduled every 15 minutes, and that's just how it's going to be. But overall, the average was, uh, I'm, I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but it was about 18 minutes per, per visit. And that there was very little variation, and what variation there, there was was not significant across practitioners. So I don't think this is an issue in this particular data set anyway of spending longer with patients. Um, I think it's a function of perhaps how folks are educated in their orientation around what care looks like. I think exactly, it, yeah. Yeah. That kind of surprises me about the um, the minutes, but you're right. It might be built into the system rather than than a personal choice. I think it would be really fascinating to do well, that. I, oh, go ahead. 
I th- what I was going to say is, again, remember the setting. This is community health right, centers where yeah. sometimes you're, as a, as a provider or a practitioner, Keith, your control over how long you spend with the patient might not be uh, you know, fully uh, your own. Right. Whereas in maybe a physician office or a private practice, you have much more control over how long you're going to spend with your patients. Yeah. And so the study that I mentioned where I'm looking at this trade-off actually will be conducted in physician offices with physicians right. rather than this study, which was set in community health centers, where I think there's a lot less control over uh, visit length. Exactly true. Although there is external pressure. And one of our lessons in, in this again and again is to not let the external pressure change how you treat the patient. Um, I think it would be interesting to do a survey practitioner, practitioner to practitioners about how, what percentage of the time they devote in a visit of a given length to specific things, like uh, the education versus, versus the diagnosis versus the physical exam, and just to see if there is a, a different approach. If, if the MDs come in thinking, okay, I have to spend this much time listening to the heart, but that means I'll only spend this much time educating. And if the nurse practitioners and the PAs have a different um, uh, idea about how to approach things. I just think that would be a, a curious thing, if not something that, that would generate real study. And I'm not sure how you could do that, but it'd be, it'd be fascinating to look into that. Well, you know, the data are definitely imperfect. I do some of my work with a labor economist. The paper we're talking about today was uh, through a collaboration with a, a labor economist, for example. And mm-hmm. he's he's often frustrated because even this variable that looks at how long you spend with a patient, which is amazing to have that data, right? right. And data sets, you don't even have that. But this data set does tell you how long the patient spends with the practitioner. But what you don't see is how long is the practitioner spending in professional education? How long is that practitioner looking at ch- looking at charts before the patient comes in? How long is that practitioner making phone calls to specialists the evening before for an understanding of whether the patient needs to be referred? That all is part of the productivity function, if you will, exactly. and it's not a, not even close to being the patient. So even in, even in the best circumstance, when we know how long somebody's spending, you know, with the practitioner or, or the practitioner with the patient. We don't know anything about what was done outside that visit in preparation or in follow-up. And we certainly don't know what's done during, you know, the, the details of those 18 minutes. I think we'd have to microchip you and, and follow you in yeah. some very careful way to know how you were spending your time. Let's and that's, cer- <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, cer- that's certainly beyond our technology right now. But for the future, I think, I think it's possible. When those artificial intelligence doctors start coming off the assembly lines, maybe uh, they'll be able to track themselves. You know? I mean, they already have an anesthesia machine that can do that. So That's right. Uh, well, it is really interesting. There, there is a study that a group of my colleagues did, not from GW, but nurse colleagues, um, who actually put uh, GPS trackers on nurses. These are nurses <laughs> in, hos- in hospitals, on hospital units medical and surgical units to find out where they were physically spending their time. Right. And one of the things they looked at is whether they were spending time in patient rooms, which of course would suggest at least some interaction with a patient and some delivery <laughs> at the at the bedside. And you'd be surprised, again, this is sort of off off topic, but you'd be surprised how much of their time was spent, you know, fetching wheelchairs and right. getting yeah. meds out of the med cart and right. briefly exactly. So briefing their colleagues uh, during rounds or during handoffs, and unfortunately, very you know, just a, a fraction of the time that they actually spent working was spent 
in the patient's room, which right. definitely uh, is symptomatic of the healthcare system we currently have created. And they knew they had the GPSs on them too. They knew they were being watched, so that had to have some sort of effect on them. But sure, you, you would think that might might have an effect. But I think the 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 point of that is there are technologies that we can employ that will give us certainly some data. The data are imperfect, even as carefully as a might track you or as somebody who has a stopwatch talking how long you're spending with a patient the you know the black box is really what's happening in that room 18 minutes and unfortunately our data systems just aren't sensitive enough yet to right. figure out what's being done then it's also the effect of, um uh my my father was a, a surgeon he would see 100 patients a day um, and he would just act in interactions with the patients, and they'd come out and say, my doctor loves me, and I've never seen anybody so involved, and yet he only spent 30 seconds. So, whereas uh, I've known people, and Colin has as well, that could spend an hour with a patient, and the patient still wouldn't think they'd got any attention. What's well, just because we have the time doesn't mean we know what's going on during the time. Well, and I think that raises you know an issue that we've kind of brought up time and time again during our, our time together, which is that this measurement is really an imperfect science right. because even if you're measuring the, the patient getting better over time, you have no idea how the patient feels about that experience. And as you well know, that definitely plays into somebody's health and wellness and whether they can, you know, when they're confronting a disease, whether they can, uh, you know, whether they get back to baseline. And so all of those things factor in. Yeah. We're not you know, for better or worse, we're not measuring the production of a widget. We're, you know, measuring the production of healthcare, which happens in a real live living human being, which is a, unfortunately an experimental condition we can't always control. That's true. Yeah. Well, let me, let me go back. Um, and I know we're, we're um, running long on time. Um, let me go back to a question I'd asked before about these questions. I mean, um, some of these quality indicators uh, are just sort of checking a box. And that's one of the things that was frustrating about the meaningful use. Um, what questions, and we have some control over, now over what questions we'll be asking, what questions should we be asking? What data should we be collecting that will really, really tell us what our quality of care is? There's probably not a simple answer, but I really respect your opinions on these. So before I... Um you know, entered an academic field, I spent almost 10 years at an organization in Washington, D.C. that's referred to as the National Quality Forum, or mm -hmm. NQF. Yeah. And NQF is sort of a quasi-government, nonprofit group that brings people together to ask that very question, sort of what measures are the most adequate measures for measuring healthcare quality in this country? And what purpose should those measures serve? And what I'll say is... I, you know, I worked there for 10 years. It was a uh, perhaps another uh, PhD or, or master's degree in the in the the field of quality measurement. I I don't work there any longer, and I know the field has evolved considerably since I was there. But what I'll say is that there is just as there is a, a sort of a health tension in in what we measure and the data that we collect and the variables on the surface. There's a really healthy tension around what the best measures for quality are. Right. And I'll just, just let me give you one example. So, you know, I think on the, the patient side of things, and, and we've all uh, probably been at one time or another or have family members who have, the ultimate question is, did I get better? Did I survive? Is my, is, is the, is my health better today than it was yesterday before I saw the physician or before I saw the nurse practitioner? And 
beyond that question being a complicated question to answer, you as the practitioner don't learn anything about the care you deliver if the question is, do I get better or do I, do I not get better? You need to know, right, the frequency in which I give the right drug at the right time to the right person. Right. You, need, you need to know whether for that really complex case of cancer or hepatitis or some other you know, illness, whether or not I prescribe the right medication and whether the, the standard of practice was maintained. Mm-hmm. And so those are two very different types of measurement. Right. And what I'll say is for practitioners and clinicians, they need to know they're doing the right thing at the right time. And for patients and clinicians, they need to know that the outcomes, the ultimate sort of life story of the patient is one that is regarded as best care. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's, there's a healthy tension for good reasons, and we need all sorts of measures um, that measure both quality of care, quality of life, mortality, morbidity, survival, cost, efficiency, productivity. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, And so it keeps researchers like me in business. (laughs) And frankly, it keeps people who develop measures and who create our measurement measurement systems very busy because there's a lot of work to be done and it's not a perfect science at all. Well, Elle, we're really getting close on the time here. You've been really generous with your time. We appreciate it. I think maybe just to close things out here, Give us an idea. I mean, I think we're, at least the three of us here are, are in agreement that having more NPs and, and PAs out there is a good thing. It's a good thing for patients. It's a good thing for doctors, too. Um, what are some things that may be holding that back right now? It could be the availability of training programs. could be legislative issues. And of course, reimbursement. I mean, they, you mentioned they, they only get reimbursed a fraction of what a, a, a doctor gets paid. What are some things that are holding, holding this back right now? So I would say the the overall trend in this country at, at the state level is to um, you know pave the way for non-physician clinicians of all types. I think the demands in the states and the demands that have increased under the Affordable Care Act for good, solid primary care, those demands have just grown tremendously. And I think the states are under under the gun to figure out how to you know, sort of work their occupational policies and their restrictions so that practitioners in the state, the resources that they have in those states are available to patients and to provide patient care under safe uh, circumstances and under licenses that are appropriate given people's academic training and credentialing. And so I think with time, we will continue to see the evolution both in the number and the, the types of practices that these practitioners can legally and are, you know, under our state occupational policies are, are able to provide. But as I mentioned, I think we'll also see some novel and innovative uses of new roles that we haven't even imagined today. Some of the challenges and some of the barriers to um, you know, more rapid uh, transformation include uh, definitely state policies that you know, sometimes don't change quite as fast as the population and as the public would like. Uh, definitely the reimbursement system, which treats practitioners differently and you know, has traditionally valued uh, you know, uh, volume rather than value and quality. Uh, definitely, there's there's certainly some professional resistance, and some states, the medical lobby has just stood firm on not being very welcoming to some of these non-traditional clinician types. And frankly, in some states, the demand hasn't been as great either. Uh, there are some states where, you know, for example, states that did not 
uh, Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, the demand for primary care has sort of been steady. And, and that, that doesn't mean the demands have been met, but they haven't increased as dramatically in some states that have expanded Medicaid and have a huge influx of folks who are now insured who, who feel like they have the resources to go see physicians and nurse practitioners. So those are some of the barriers, not all of the barriers, but probably some of the most pressing barriers. Well, certainly the way to approach those are with collection and, and evaluation of the data like like this uh, very, very important and very great paper that you've, you've produced. So congratulations on that, and uh, thank you so much for spending time talking about it and talking about your, your process and, and your work. Well, it's really been a pleasure. I, you know, you, you, um, your audience, I, I'm grateful that your audience is interested in this topic. I'm grateful that you've given me an opportunity and you, uh, you know, have, have said nice things about the work and the study. I hope I can continue to contribute in important ways. So I look forward to that. We do too, Ellen. And um, just to close things out, uh, let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work. Sure. Well, as I said, I'm on the faculty at the George Washington University School of Nursing, which is in Washington, D.C. We have a robust and very available website. And so for folks who were interested in following up with me personally, um, that's one way to do it. The other is to um, to actually look at the, the paper that we've been talking about, looking at the study. Almost all the health services research studies that are published have contact information for the, for the authors that are, you know, the researchers that publish the study. And so that's another way to find an email and, and contact information for me. Great. We'll get that all up for everybody out there on the website if you want to take a look at more. And uh, everybody, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Ellen Kurtzman. And wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.